Lesson six, the means of grace, faith, and good works. Um, catechism questions 136 and a whole lot more. You can see them there on your screen. And tonight we begin in Acts chapter two, um, verses one through 39, the account of Pentecost. As in the book of Amos for our daily Bible reading. All right, Acts chapter 2. Um, you're thinking New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Acts chapter 2, the account of Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover, um, so it, and it's roughly, you know, basically 50 days after Easter is the day of Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, talking about the disciples here, the followers of Jesus. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Picking it up in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2 verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, will fill me with joy in your presence. 
Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and whose tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to people and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That is Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 39. Um, and I guess that gives a bit of a, the background and the introduction for what we're talking about tonight talking about the means of grace and um, and how God creates faith and what is the role or relationship between faith and good works. Uh, so if you're following along in your workbook, um, at the top of your workbook, obviously you see the references to the catechism and you can look up those catechism questions on your own as part of your homework and your review after this lesson finishes. Um, but then in that blue box, top of the page, we have what we call the third article of the Apostles' Creed, or the third portion of the Apostles' Creed. And of all, of all the three parts, this one would probably be the one most readily seen, where you see the most differences between uh, Resurrection Lutheran Church and the other churches that you might have had contact with or been associated with. Um, because, you know, the first article, God created the world. There are a lot of Christians who, who deny that fact, um, but it's fairly easy to see. The second article, when we talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we talked about the last two weeks, um, you can see those, but usually it takes a little bit more, little bit more time. And even there, there's a lot of agreement among, among Christian church bodies, you know, that, that they want to agree with what the Bible says about this. But the third article, the one we're looking at tonight, is where the differences will be most glaring. Well, you're, where you'll notice them um, just having sat through even, even one church service. And so the third article of the Apostles' Creed and its explanation reads like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot by my own thinking or choosing believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified, and kept me in the true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth, and keeps with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church he daily and fully forgives all sins to me and all believers. On the last day, he will raise me and all the dead, 
and to give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. So Acts 2, verses 1 through 39 uh, that we just read, um, Pentecost is a is the festival of, um, it's a harvest festival for, for the Jewish people, and it's roughly 50 days after Passover. And the two bullet points that you see there on the, point, on the page, uh, first of all, Jesus promised that after he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit would come and help his disciples tell the world what Jesus had done. Awesome. And then the other bullet point, the first Christian Pentecost took place 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, which is 50 days after the Passover, during which Jesus was in the grave or in the tomb. Um, and so you think of the events of Jesus' life. We sometimes talk about, or at least I, <laughs> we sometimes talk about the five great Christian festivals. Um, you've got Easter and then Epiphany. And then, well, first one, Christmas, sorry. Christmas is when Jesus was born. Epiphany is when the wise men or the magi come and worship the young child, Jesus. Um, the third major festival is the festival of Easter, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fourth major festival is the festival of the ascension, when this Jesus, who is both true God and true man, visibly ascends, that is, he goes up into heaven. And then the fifth major festival is this festival of Pentecost, where we have we have exactly what we heard in our reading, this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a special way, as God basically jumpstarts his church and thousands of people were baptized that day. Um, Pentecost is often thought of or, you know, discussed, talked about as kind of the birthday of the Christian church. And so that's that's kind of all in the background, and we're looking at all of this tonight in view of the third article and uh, and what God has done there. So far, so good. So number one, Jesus' disciples very likely felt scared, and after Jesus ascended into heaven, scared and afraid. Why do you think they may have felt that way? If you think about it, Jesus had been with them as their mentor and rabbi and teacher for three years and doing all sorts of miracles. Um, but they may have been afraid. Well, they could no longer see Jesus. And now the same Jewish leaders who had Jesus crucified would be looking at them. And, and what they're doing is, we hear it in Peter's sermon here, he points to those people and he says, you are the ones who crucified Jesus. Like that is, that's a pretty intense message um, that, you know, this Christian faith is, is not a faith for the weak. Um, but the fact is that we aren't simply um, admirers of Jesus, that Jesus has made us followers of him. We'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. Read Luke chapter 24, verses 48 to 49, John 14, verse 26 and 15, verse 26 and 27, and John 16, verse 7. Um, this is in the seminal passages that is going to be projected on your screen for you. So Luke 24, 48 and 49, Jesus said, you are witnesses of these things. Look, I am sending you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. John 14, verse 26 and 15, verses 26 and 27. Jesus said, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things 
and will remind you of everything that I told you. In John 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also are going to testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. And the last verse that we talked about, uh, John 16, verse 7. Jesus said, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is good for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All right, so those are the string of passages that we wanted to read here in relation to uh, our question. What comforting promise had Jesus made to them? You think back, um, Luke 24, you will be my witnesses, that you're, you're not an attorney for Jesus. You're not here to argue, just to state what you know. And he consistently makes this promise that he will send the counselor, that is the, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, his promise that Jesus makes is that the Holy Spirit would come to comfort, to help, and to remind them of everything that Jesus had said. And just a reminder, um, the video of this will be hosted at YouTube and available through our website. And, uh, and just today, we got word from Apple Podcasts that the audio podcast of this is, has been approved. So if you just search for RWJ in your podcast app, um, that stands for Raised with Jesus, all three of our congregational podcasts begin with that RWJ prefix, and they'll hopefully be easier to find. Um, so you can go back and review it if you are so inclined. Number three, the Holy Spirit made his presence known with the sound of a rushing wind and tongues of fire over the disciples' heads. What comfort would the disciples receive from the Holy Spirit's presence? This is, you know, thinking back to Acts chapter 2 um, on the day of Pentecost. What comfort would they receive from his presence? Well, <laughs> Jesus had kept his promises. Um, just as he always did, he had promised to send the counselor, the one who would guide them, who would lead them, who would comfort them and be with them. And this is, this is a beautifully strong promise that God was with them in a special way. Um, and that they, they weren't, they weren't alone, that Jesus hasn't like kicked them out of the nest and say, okay, go figure it out. Good luck. Number four, the festival of Pentecost also known as the Feast of Weeks. You can look at Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 22. This festival of Pentecost would have brought Jewish believers from all over the world to Jerusalem. That's where you have that listing in verse 6. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, people, you know, basically all over <laughs> are coming to Jerusalem. On this particular day, why did the Holy Spirit allow the disciples to speak in languages that they had never studied? Yeah, why do you think he did that? Well, so that they can, they can translate. So they could share the, the good news of Jesus with all the visitors to Jerusalem and share this in a way that they would be able, the, the hearers would be able to understand it and understand it well. Um, God doesn't do miracles like this for no reason. And very consistently, even in the ministry of Jesus, we see that a prime purpose of the miracles is to provide a hearing for the message. Number five, 
what were some of the reactions from the people there who heard the disciples speaking? Look at that, Acts 2, verses 7 through 13. We'll scroll up to that. Acts 2. Here we are. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them speaking in our own native language? We hear them um, declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They're amazed and perplexed, and they ask, What does this mean? Some people are making fun of them. Oh, they've had too much to drink. They must be drunk because that happens apparently, right? Um, that if somebody has a little bit too much alcohol and overindulges, then all of a sudden they're able to speak coherently in a different language. A little bit of sarcasm there. All right, so what are some of the reactions? There's some amazement. There's definitely some confusion, like what's going on? I thought they're, they're all from Galilee, which is not just that it's the land of Israel, but it's it's kind of, you know, maybe a little bit of a backwards place and, and you know, Galilee of all places, that's not where the universities are. Um, there's some ridicule and making fun while well, they've had too much to drink. Number six, Peter stood up to set the record straight. He told the people about Jesus and how he had died to rescue them from their sins. And um, you think of lesson five, the previous lesson, Jesus serving in his office as priest, carrying out his duty as priest, which is to, um, to lay down his life as a sacrifice. Why do you think Peter began his sermon by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel? Aside from the prophecy itself, which was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, he, these are Jewish believers coming to Jerusalem, and the people would have been familiar with the book of Joel. He was an Old Testament prophet, and when Peter starts quoting, then the people can say, hey, I recognize that, I remember that, and, and I've read that. Number seven, when Peter confronted them with the fact that they had crucified the Messiah, he was preaching the law to them. Um, if you remember our definition of God's law, it's what God demands and, um, and shows our sin and shows us how we have fallen short and demonstrates God's wrath against us for that sin. Uh, so Peter preaches God's law. And that law, you know, is echoed even in our own consciences. Um, that's the voice of God's law in our hearts. So why did Peter need to preach the law to these people? Why can he just stand up and say, hey, Jesus has died for you. Your sin is forgiven. Well, number seven, to show that what they were doing was wrong and really to prepare their hearts so that they would value what God did to rescue them. And that, that rescuing is a message for them in the gospel. The gospel, the, the message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Number eight, God's law clearly um, shows very clearly that we are guilty of sin. But God's word shows that our sin goes even deeper than the things we do wrong. Read Ephesians 2 verse 1 and Romans 8 verse 7. What do we know about ourselves by nature? This will be in these supplemental passages, I believe. All right, we'll scroll on down. Feast of Weeks. A little bit further. Ephesians 2 verse 1 and Romans 8 verse 7. Ephesians 2, 
you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In Romans 8 verse 7, the mindset of the sinful flesh is hostile to God, since it does not submit to God's law, and in fact, it cannot. Ooh, strong wording. <laughs> so what do we know about ourselves by nature? That is, um, before God has done any work on your heart, um, what does every person, what can every person know about themselves? Well, that we are dead in sin and that we fight against God. He says that we were by nature in objects of wrath, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He doesn't say that we were wounded and that we just need some encouragement. He says dead. And if you've ever seen, you know, roadkill, <laughs> you see a deer by the side of the highway, that deer isn't going to get up and run away no matter how much you bend down and say, Bambi, Bambi, get up and it's time to go home. Um, no, dead things don't do anything. And that would be bad enough. But then God describes us even more bluntly in Romans 8 verse 7. He says the sinful heart is hostile to God. Uh, not just that we are dead and, and not just that we are blind, that we spiritually um, don't even know up from down, but also that by nature we are God's enemies and by nature we hate him. Even though we are spiritually dead, um, we still have that capacity to hate God. And that's what we are by nature. And we're dead in sin and we fight against God. And both things are true. So number nine, this is kind of the logical conclusion of this, okay? Uh, since we were born spiritually dead in sin, what could we do for ourselves spiritually? Easy. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing at all. Um, that dead people can't do anything. And so um, even though that is offensive to our human minds, and you might say, well, Pastor Hagen, I, I have some free will. You you have free will in, in some external matters. Like, do I want to wear a, a green sweater today or do I want to wear a red sweater today? You, you can say, do I want to make, um, do I want to make chicken or pasta for supper tonight? Those are external things of this world, but they are not, they have no spiritual value uh, in and of themselves. And spiritually, we can't do anything for ourselves. Spiritually, we could not decide. We could not make any movement toward God. All we could do was be his enemy. So number 10, um, because we were born spiritually dead, what did we need God to do for us? And um, if you need a little bit of a review, think back to lessons three and four and five, primarily the work of God in the first and second article. Well, we needed God to save us. God needed to be the one to rescue us. <coughs> Read number 11. Read Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, and Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Although we were dead in our sins, what has God done for us through Jesus Christ? Um, this should be, yep, here in the supplemental verses. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. God, because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in trespasses. Trespasses, another word for sins. It is by grace you have been saved. 
<coughs> and Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ by forgiving us all our trespasses. God erased the record of our debt brought against us by his legal demands. This record stood against us, but he took it away by nailing it to the cross. After disarming the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them by triumphing over them in Christ. All right, so we hear who, what we are like, and then we hear what God is like and what God has done. So although we were dead in our sins, what has God done for us through Jesus? Well, he's made you alive. That is his promise. That is, that is his action, and it has to be entirely his action because by ourselves, you know, that's not our, that's not our choice. We would hate God, and dead things don't do anything. Which gets us to our first definition. Um, and right above the box there on page 40, I believe, that God made us alive, makes us alive when he creates faith in our hearts. Read Hebrews 11 verse 1 for a summary of what faith is. Hebrews 11 verse, we have to scroll back over here. Hebrews 11 verse 1, um, right here at the top. Here we are. Faith is being sure about what we hope for, being convinced about things we do not see. All right, so the definition of faith, which gets to our definition here on the page. Faith is trusting that God's promises are true for us and for all people. So in, in, its, in its very core, when you boil it down, faith is a word for trust. And that trust is something that God has created within your heart. Um, and, and it's trust that God is faithful, that God's promises are true for us, and that also for all people, not only for us. Number 12. So we just had that definition of faith, trusting that God's promises are true for us and all people. Basically, faith equals trust. Number 12, read Romans 1 verse 16. What tool does God use to give and strengthen faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior? In Romans 1, chapter 1 verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. All right. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, so I'm going to brag about the gospel. Um, what is the tool? The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who, believe, who believes. So the tool that God uses is the gospel. Part of that question that we'll have in just a little bit here is, well, then Pastor Hagen, what's the gospel? Um, we'll get there in just a minute. Big news. Yeah, this is fantastic. Um, read Romans 10, verse 17 and 2 Timothy. That's here in our supplemental passages. Romans 10, verse 17, right here at the top. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message comes through the word of Christ. And 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17, a little bit longer section here. Paul writes, As for you, continue in the things you have learned 
and about what you have become convinced. You know from whom you learned it, and that from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, well-equipped for every good work. So where is the gospel found? Uh, the gospel is found in God's word, only in God's word. It's not found anywhere else. And through this gospel, um, God creates and strengthens faith. Faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. And so the gospel is this message of, of good news. And you see that in um, following along in your workbook here. You see that on page 41 in your workbook. Um, starting at the top, forgiveness of sins is basically that's the message of the gospel, that God declared all people not guilty, and that that declaration is something that we call justification, and uh, we'll come around to that term again. And God declared all people not guilty because Jesus paid the debt that we owe, and this forgiveness is offered as a free gift to all. That's the message of the gospel, that all people have been declared not guilty for the sake of Jesus, and that forgiveness, that declaration of not guilty, that declaration of righteousness is offered freely um, because that's what God's grace has decided. You know, God's grace is God's undeserved love for sinners. And so in his, in his love, um, God offers this free of charge to all people. Uh, the gospel is can be rejected by self-righteousness, that if we trust in what we do and we trust in our own attitudes and our own perceptions, um, then in a way that's saying, no thanks God, I'll figure it out on my own. And that forgiveness, even though that forgiveness was won for all people, that forgiveness can be forfeited and lost. Um, the gospel is received through faith in Jesus. And that faith, just as we learned about right here, that faith is created by the Holy Spirit when he works through uh, the gospel, the message of the gospel. And that faith receives forgiveness of sins and the certainty of eternal life with God forever in heaven. All right, so that is where the gospel is found in God's word. If you think back, um, that another name for that is the revealed knowledge of God. So every person by nature has the natural knowledge of God. They know that God exists. They know what God demands on the basis of what they see in nature and what they feel in their conscience. But that only in the revealed knowledge of God do we have this message of the gospel. And we have the clear law as well. Um, the message of the gospel is what changes heart and, and the tool that God uses, God the Holy Spirit uses, to create faith. Read 1 Peter 3, verse 21, and Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. Where else is the gospel found? 1 Peter 3, verse 21 on your screen. Corresponding to the water of the flood, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the guarantee of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you see right here in the middle... Baptism saves you. Pretty simple Greek. Um, 
you have a subject and a verb and an object. Baptism, subject, saves, verb, you, object, or the recipient of that verb. And Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. While Jesus and his disciples were eating, Jesus took bread, took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples. He said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You notice right here at the bottom, the purpose of the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of sins, that this forgiveness would be distributed to each of them, individually and personally. Okay. So number 14, where else is the gospel found? Well, in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And those two things we together call the sacraments. We'll get to that definition here in just a minute. But that's our key term at the bottom. Our key term, uh, means of grace or the tools of God's grace. The means of grace is the gospel, the gospel in word and the gospel in sacrament. With these tools, the Holy Spirit creates and strengthens faith. So you could say, if you said, well, Pastor Hagen, how many means of grace are there? How many tools does God use? You could say, well, God uses one. God uses the gospel. You could say, well, God uses two. He uses the gospel in word and the gospel in sacrament. Or you could say God uses three. He uses the gospel in word, the gospel in holy baptism, and the gospel in holy communion. Um, all those all those statements are true, <laughs> but it, it's, it just boils down to the fact that God applies this message of the forgiveness of sins to hearts through word and sacrament. And so when we have that term gospel, we remember that this is a message of what Jesus has done. Sorry. Turning the page there to page 42. The gospel is a message of what Jesus has done and that Jesus has done this for you and for me, free of charge. Um, there's no notion of demand of what we should do or what we have to do or as though we had to pay God back. Top of page 42, our other key term, exactly as we just said, is a sacrament. A sacrament, um, the word itself, is not found in Scripture, but it's um, you know, a word that, that was developed by the early church to talk about these two things that are distinct from everything else. Um, sacrament, our key term, a sacred act, and here are the three criteria for a sacrament. That the sacred act was instituted by Jesus. Um, it connects an earthly element with God's word and offers the forgiveness of sins. The two sacraments are holy baptism and the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. And so that, that definition, since the term is not used in scripture, we need to be sure to make sure that we define it. Um, because we can't just make up a term and not define it, and how you define it matters. And so this sacred act instituted by Jesus, um, when he says at the end of Matthew, in the book of Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, there he attaches a special significance to this Christian baptism and tells them how they are to baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In holy baptism, Water is used in connection with the word of God. 
So water is this earthly element in connection with God's word. And then thirdly, baptism offers, grants, and seals or proves the forgiveness of sins. Um, that that is God's work on your heart and mine. And everywhere that we have baptism described in the New Testament, baptism does something. Um, Romans chapter six is one of my favorite chapters in all in the entire Bible, you know, and, and I say that about pretty much every chapter that I read at one time or another. But Romans chapter six, God, God spends like 10 verses telling how baptism is a parallel and connects us to the resurrection of Jesus. That in baptism, you were raised with Jesus and brought into this new resurrection life. And that in baptism, the life of Jesus meets yours. Um, the same is true in, in Holy Communion, that in baptism, the forgiveness of Jesus meets yours and he gives you his life. Um, the same is true in the word that is preached and spoken. Um, as those words are applied and spoken and heard, the Holy Spirit works through those words to actually give what they declare, uh, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. So our three-part definition for a sacrament, that Jesus started it, that it connects something earthly with God's word, such as water or um, bread and wine in connection with God's word, and it offers and gives the forgiveness of sins. Number 15. You have a nice little diagram there on page 42 in blue. And we'll talk more about the two individual sacraments in the next two lessons, lessons seven and eight. Um, number 15. We learned in lesson five that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he secured general justification or objective justification. If you think back, what is, wow, objective justification or general justification is the fact that all the sins of the entire world have been forgiven. Well, that's some, that's some good news. Well, for sure. <laughs> but even though, even though Jesus paid for the sins of all people, not everyone will be in heaven. We need faith in Jesus to so that we receive his forgiveness and that we benefit from his work. When God creates faith in us, what God did for the world becomes our personal treasure. We call that personal or subjective justification. So our key term there on the page, personal justification or subjective justification, that we receive Jesus' forgiveness through faith. When the Holy Spirit creates faith, what Jesus did for the world becomes ours, your own personal possession. Um, the forgiveness that Jesus won for all people is applied to you individually. And that's awesome. That's, you know, that's God's work through the gospel to create faith and receive that forgiveness. Um, still on page 42, when God creates faith in our hearts, he changes us from somebody dead in sin to somebody alive in Jesus. He changes us from someone who is his enemy to someone who is his child. We call that change sanctification. So sanctification to set apart or to make holy. You see right at the beginning, the first, what is that? Four letters, S-A-N-C, sanct. Um, is from a Latin word that means holy. Um, and so, you know, we, th we talk about like um, some of the songs that we use in worship. There's a song that we sing right before, you know, during Holy Communion. And it goes, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that song is called the Sanctus because it, you, it, it's the song of the angels um, as they 
in Isaiah chapter 6, as they sing back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy. And that word sanctus just means holy. And you see that here, sanctification, holy, um, to set apart or to make holy. This is our um, fact that after God brings you to faith, then he sets you apart to live a holy life, to live love to his glory. And that is the image for us at the top of page 43 in your workbook. The work of the Holy Spirit um, sets us apart from the darkness of unbelief and makes us holy through Christ. Sanctification um, is kind of described in three different ways. Um, it's, first of all, conversion, turning somebody from unbelief to faith, uh, rebirth to be born again spiritually, and then quickening, being made alive spiritually. And all that happens, and it's all, all bundled up there in that gospel message, that that's the message he uses. Those are the tools, the means of grace that God uses to get his grace applied to you in your heart individually. Gets us to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. Um, this is you know, a section of from one of Paul's missionary journeys where we hear about uh, his work and then he is put in prison and then what happens next? Um, it's pretty exciting actually. Paul and Silas in prison. Acts 16 beginning in verse 16. It's there on your screen. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She's speaking the truth, but Paul probably doesn't need her testimony, uh, the testimony of demons. Verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. You can kind of sense some of the, some of the tension here. Um, they, they're like, oh man, our, our money-making our money-making scheme is gone. Uh, we got to get rid of these guys. We got to got to get back at them somehow. And they they trump up some charges and really play up <laughs> play up the division. That Paul and Silas aren't from around here. Verse twenty-two. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, 
Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. One of the things that you'll notice, um, Luke, as Luke records this for us in Acts chapter 16, in three verses, he says the same thing, um, talking about the rest of the jailer's family. Well, actually four verses. Um, Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your whole household. Verse 31, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Verse 33, immediately he and all his family were baptized. And then verse 44, he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. That will be noteworthy when we get to our discussion of holy baptism in a lesson or two. I think it's the next lesson. All right, so in your, in your workbook, you've got those two summary points on page 43. Paul and, first of all, Paul and Silas were put in jail for helping a girl with an evil spirit, and they told others about their faith in Jesus, even when they were in jail. Um, so continuing on, number 16, how was this slave girl able to, able to earn money for her masters? You might recall that from our reading. Because of power from an evil spirit, she was able to predict the future, or at least make some educated guesses about the future and have it come, out, come true often enough that people believed she was able to tell exactly the future. Number 17, what was she doing that annoyed Paul, Silas, and Luke? Verses 17 and 18, um, well, she was following along after them like for days on end and calling out making claims about them listen to these men they're telling you the way to be saved like constantly if somebody did that for like 45 minutes i'd be like are they done yet um i i appreciate it but i don't need the testimony of of a demon <laughs> you know you can you can go on your way I'll, I'll baptize you or um you can you can be a follower of jesus but these people need to hear what I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I could, I could see, you know, them being a little bit annoyed by this, and it's understandable. Number eighteen, what she said about Paul and his companions was true. Why do you think they wanted her to stop? Well, the the simple answer is maybe they were annoyed. Um, the deeper answer, or the the broader answer, is that she had a reputation for telling the future by virtue of this evil spirit and this wicked power and she was enslaved to that wicked power and um it was probably hurting the reputation it was distracting from their work i mean try try having a, a nice heart-to-heart -heart conversation about spiritual matters with somebody when there's somebody else over your shoulder shouting <laughs> it's a little bit difficult Number 19, why were the girls' masters so upset with Paul and Silas? That was verses 19 and 20. 
Paul and Silas cast out the spirit and ruined their source of income. And so, you know, if you could see this, you could see like this, maybe, maybe if, if God had allowed it, you could see this spirit just leave her and fly away and disappear. And all the owners saw was dollar signs flying away and disappearing. Oh no, um, how are we going to make money now? So number 20, what happened to Paul and Silas? And this, this comes into play. If you read the rest of, um, rest of Acts chapter 16, this comes into play a little bit later. Uh, Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. What happened to them? They were dragged before the authorities, publicly flogged and beaten, and then thrown into prison without a trial. Oh boy, that's a, that's some serious opposition. <laughs> that's a bad day at the office. <laughs> you could probably say more than that. Uh, number 21. Why do you suppose Paul and Silas were joyfully singing hymns to God even after they were beaten and thrown into prison? Verse 25. That's, that's noteworthy. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. There's probably a couple reasons here. They were thankful that they knew the true God. They were still alive. They were rejoicing that um, that when Jesus said, whoever would come after me must take up his cross daily and follow me. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. They knew that, that in their hearts they were free <laughs> and in their hearts that God's verdict on them was not guilty, even though physically they were constrained in jail and, um, and the local government authorities might pass a different verdict on them that God's court is higher and, uh, and God, God would be with them. And so they, they had freedom of conscience. They had the freedom to say and do what they wanted and they could still sing praises to God. That's fantastic. Number 22, after the earthquake, why do you think the jailer was going to take his own life? Verse 27, drew out his sword to kill himself. Well, he assumed that all the prisoners had escaped and the penalty for allowing an escape was death. We see that a little bit later in the book of Acts on Paul's fourth missionary journey. Um, he's on a ship that is actually is shipwrecked and in the middle of a storm and the people in charge were going to kill all the prisoners so that they wouldn't get away. And Paul said, well, don't kill us. Just let us swim to this nearby island and nobody's, nobody's going to die. Um, but at the very least, you can also see that this jailer is distraught. He's experiencing a major crisis that, you know, he locked up the prison when he, when he went home that night. Um, and he probably lived like right across the street, maybe. And, um, and then he's woken up by a, an earthquake in the middle of the night and he gets over there, calls for lights and torches. And the place has all the doors open. Like, oh my goodness, what happened? And how bad is it going to be for me? You know, what kind of torture are they going to exact from me? So he's pretty distraught in addition to that legal obligation of, uh, of death. So number 23, the jailer likely, probably, possibly had heard Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns about Jesus. How do we know that the law must have been working on his heart? Verses 29 and 30. We'll go over to that. 
the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This doesn't happen very often, even as a pastor, where somebody comes up to me and they're like, oh, you're a pastor at that resurrection church? Um, what do I have to do to be saved? <laughs> but when the law has done its work, when that feeling of guilt and distress that, oh no, God is going to judge me and, and there's nothing I can do about it. The law is working on his heart when he, when we see that, fell down trembling and asked how to be saved from his sins. Number 25, oh, number 24. Paul told the jailer to believe in Jesus as the way to be saved, to have faith. What does that mean? Uh, basically, trust what God has said in his word, what Jesus has done for him. Trust the fact that what do you have to do to be saved? Well, really, you don't have to do anything because Jesus has done everything. That's the distinction with the Christian faith that every other belief in the world says, do this. Every other belief in the world says, do this and don't do that. And here are the rules and here are the obligations. And every other religion is a do religion. Christianity alone is a religion that says it's done. There's nothing else for you to do. And even that faith is, is a work that God does, that God creates that faith. Number 25, once when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he taught them the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. In the second petition of that prayer, we ask that God's kingdom would come. Read the petition and Martin Luther's explanation. What are we asking God to do when we ask his kingdom to come? The explanation is at the top of page 45 in that blue box. Your kingdom come, what does this mean? God's kingdom certainly comes by itself, even without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may also come to us. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our heavenly Father gives his Holy Spirit, so that by his grace we believe his holy word and lead a godly life now on earth and forever in heaven. And so, you know, the kingdom, the kingdom that we're talking about here is the ruling activity of Jesus in somebody's heart. That Jesus is king not only over the whole universe, but that he takes up residence in a person's heart after he brings that person to faith. So it's the ruling activity of Jesus. What are we asking God to do when we ask that his kingdom come? We're asking that God would strengthen our faith and give faith to those who do not have it. And again, the only way that he does that is through that gospel, that message um, conveyed in word and in sacrament. And so in a sense, this is also asking God, give us the confidence to speak because you just living a good Christian life, you just living a good, moral, upright, ethically sound life isn't going to save a single person. It's never going to create faith in somebody's heart. It might, um, might allow for some authenticity, might make you more believable as a Christian, might add to your credibility, but for somebody to come to faith, they need to hear the words that you can't talk about, that nobody's going to come to faith if, if you never mention the name Jesus, plain and simple. Um, but conversely, when we talk about the facts of the life of Jesus, that he lived a perfect life and died innocently and rose from the dead, 
and that his death and resurrection means that your sin has been forgiven. Oh, that's awesome. Your kingdom come. Number 26. According to Luther's explanation to the second petition above, what is the result of God's rule of faith in our hearts? That we live God-pleasing lives. That's the result. Um, that's sanctification, if you remember that word from a little bit earlier. Number 27. The jailer was overjoyed to realize there was nothing he could do to earn God's forgiveness. He could simply trust God's promise that he was forgiven. How did he express his joy? Verses 33 and 34. Well, he washed their wounds, took care of them, and he shared the good news with his whole family. That's what he had in verses, I think, 31 through 34. Mentions his whole household, his whole family, um, the employees, the servants that live there, his his children, his, you know, maybe their aunts and uncles or siblings. Um, there's a lot of people in this typical Roman household. Number 28. What can we do to show our thanks to God for his love and forgiveness? Live our lives the way God wants us to do. That is, do good works. Live a life of love toward God and toward other people. Um, and to put that faith into action. And this is the proper perspective for doing good things, for doing good works. That it comes as a result of faith. It adds nothing um, to our forgiveness. It adds nothing to our forgiveness. It doesn't make you more forgiven. It doesn't undo the bad that we have done. Um, but it is the result of the faith that God has created. That, dear friend, you have been set free. You have been set free from an eternity apart from God. You have been set free and you've been given spiritual life. And the result of that is, wow, can I at least say thank you to him? How, how can I say thank you to him? Well, look back at you know the Ten Commandments again and honor God in the way you live according to those according to that law we see God's law then in a new light so our key terms good works uh, the things that believers do according to God's will out of thanks for all that God has done God's will is what we have revealed in the Bible in Holy Scripture And our key term, life of sanctification, living a life as God's forgiven child, a life that is filled with good works. There's the note underneath the box there on page 45. In lesson 11, we will talk about using God's law as a guide. We call that the third use of the law to show us how to joyfully thank God with our lives. So we'll come around to this again, but this is kind of the introduction to that concept. Number 29, read multiple verses. 1 John 1, verse 7, Romans 10, verse 17, Philippians 2, verse 13, and Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. What credit can we take for our forgiveness, our faith, and even our good works? Over here to our supplemental passages. 1 John 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message comes through the word of Christ. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, going on to the next page. So then, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only when I was with you, but also now much more in my absence, 
Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll scroll down over here. In fact, it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work for the sake of his good pleasure. And Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance so that we would walk in them. So number 29, what credit can we take for our forgiveness, our faith, and our good works? We take no credit. God gets 100% of the credit for all of them. And that's actually a comfort because if it depends on us, that would, that would throw our, even our forgiveness into, into doubt. But since the forgiveness is complete and the, even the good things that we do are God's work, that's a comfort. Uh, so number 30, if we are unwilling to live as God wants us to live, even after we have come to know that God has loved us and forgiven us, what might that say about our faith? From James 2, verses 14 through 17 and verse 26. And this is kind of the flip side, a little bit of a statement of law. James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but has no works? Such so-called faith cannot save him, can it? If a brother or sister needs clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you tells them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but does not give them what their body needs, what good is it? So also, such so-called faith, if it is alone and has no works, is dead. For just as the body without breath is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And it's kind of the, you know, even in that last verse, the body without breath is dead that and his point there is that a body that's dead doesn't breathe and a faith that's dead doesn't do works doesn't do good godly things in line with the word of god um, and another way of thinking about this is you know what think of an apple tree you know how do you know it's an apple tree well it produces fruit if it's not producing fruit um, then it's it's dying if it's not dead already so if we're unwilling to live as God wants us to live, even after we have come to know that God has loved us and forgiven us, what might that say about our faith? Well, dangerously weak, perhaps even dead. Um, and that's something that we deal with patiently and cautiously. And we deal with that together by encouragement from the word of God, because only the means of grace can change a heart. <laughs> and this is, this is a major point. Um, that we just talked about in in one of our other one of our other lessons or one of our other classes rather and i'm going to add it here on the on the screen so just a second And it reads like this, the way you think you came to faith is the way that you think you remain in faith. And, and this deals with 
obviously from on the basis of scripture, you can know the way that you were brought to faith, that it was not your decision. It was the work of the Holy Spirit through word and or the sacrament of holy baptism. So that's how you know you came to faith. That's how you were brought to faith. And that must be the way that you remain in the faith, going back to that word of God. If you think, if a person thought that the way they became a Christian was by their own decision, then the way that they would remain in their faith is by deciding again. And by proving their decision is valid by doing good works. If a person thought that the way they came to faith was simply God decided it and and that was it, then the way they would think they remain in the faith is by proving by their actions that they were chosen by God. And what that does is it turns everything upside down. It injects our works and our deeds into God's work. It makes it turns that idea of justification is God's declaration of not guilty for the sake of Jesus. Um, and if we if we in some way think that we are participants in becoming a Christian in the first place, then your Christianity will entirely be about what you do to remain a Christian. All right, finishing up here, we are almost done. Verse number 31. On the next page, we'll not always do what God wants us to do. We'll, sh we'll fail to show our thanks to God for forgiving us and giving us eternal life. What will I as a Christian do when I realize that I haven't lived my life of sanctification well, when I haven't done the good works I should have done? Read John, 1 John 1 verse 9 and Colossians 3, 15 to 17. This is going to wrap us up tonight. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Colossians 3, 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ control your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your heart to God. And everything you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what will I do when I haven't done the good works I should have done? Well, I'll confess my sin. Lord, there's more I could have done. And I didn't. And I acted selfishly instead of in love toward others and obedience to your word. Well, admit that. And you have been forgiven in Jesus. And you can say, Lord, help me to live for you. So our connection question um, is there for you. Imagine that an acquaintance pulls you aside to talk about something that has been troubling him or her. The person says, I've done some bad things in my life. I try to make up for it, but I'm afraid. I don't think God will ever accept me. How would you respond? Don't want to leave you with a cliffhanger like that, but you can think for it. Your, think through, think it through yourself. Look back over the lesson. Um, but you basically emphasize what Jesus did and then say, Hey, come in here. I've got a pastor that I want you to meet and I've got a Jesus that I want you to meet. 
So that is going to wrap us up for tonight. Your homework is there at the bottom of page 46, basically reviewing um, portions out of Luther's Catechism, which is a summary of Christian doctrine. And if you are so inclined, you can check out this video on YouTube or through our website, um, raisedwithjesus.com slash join, I believe, um, or search for RWJ membership in your favorite podcast app. And if it's not there today, it'll be there in a day or two, I'm sure.